Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. I tell you, it's nice to be able to have children in a church so that we can have what we just had here. The Lord has done great things through the ministries of Oxford Baptist Church over the course of the years, and I think that it's appropriate right now if we just stop and just thank Him for giving us a ministry to children. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for letting us have the privileged opportunity of being here today, of Lord God seeing the children of Oxford Baptist Church put on something as simple as what they did this morning. Father, it's not simple. I've been involved in churches where they couldn't do what we just did this morning. For one who has been in churches that didn't have any opportunity for children's ministry, personally, Father, I just want to thank you for what happened here today. Bless every parent who's here, every grandparent, every mother and father. Father, we desire to raise our children in the right way, the way that honors the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the definition of paradise? What images come to your mind when you think about paradise? And by the way, don't you just enjoy even the thought of, of paradise? Doesn't it just really evoke a lot of imagination maybe in your mind? Maybe you have in your mind when you think about paradise, maybe the perfect sunrise. Just the right temperature. Maybe the sound of ocean waves crashing as the birds in the background give a gentle harmony. Just sort of soothes your soul. No worries. No cares. No concerns. Now, that video is two hours long. If you want to go to YouTube, type in ocean breeze and birds, and you can sit there at your office chair or wherever, your bed, and just listen. But today, what I want to do is I want to summarize paradise for us in one word. And the one word that I want to use to summarize paradise is presence. Now, not those things that we get on Christmas morning, the other kind of presence, not with a T, but with a C. Presence, presence, the presence of God. That's paradise. The presence of God is our longing. The presence of God is our goal. The presence of God is everything that we could ever imagine and hope for. It is paradise. So in contemporary poetry, we say things to describe his presence like he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing. Or maybe in biblical language we say things like this, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing 
for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now this morning at Oxford Baptist Church, I'm so glad that we're all here together because we are in the third movement of a seven-part series at Oxford. And what we've been doing is we've been looking really and answering the question of how the whole Bible fits together. So we've called this series Christmas and the Temple. And what we're really doing in this entire series is we're looking at the Gospel of Luke to answer why did Jesus live his life in the certain way that he did? Why did Jesus live his life in the shadow of the temple? And so, uh, the opening scene of Luke. We've been dealing with Luke. We haven't looked at Luke yet, but we'll come back there. The opening scene of Luke begins in the temple with a priest being told that he and his wife are going to expect a son. And this son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then Jesus is born in that magnificent Luke chapter 2 passage. He's presented in the temple in the eighth day. And then we see him again in the temple. Luke gives us the only picture of Jesus as a young boy. And guess where he is? He's in the temple. And then, of course, in the final days of Jesus' life, Luke shows us that Jesus spent those final days in and around the temple. And so what Luke wants us to do is Luke wants us to see that Jesus chose to live his life in the shadow of the temple. And so our task at Oxford, what we've been trying to do together, is we've been trying to determine the significance of the temple. And so from all of those considerations, from all of those, we've suggested that the temple, listen carefully, was intended to point to a reality beyond itself. So the temple is very significant. You can't read the Bible without reading either temple language or someone talking about the temple. But the reason that the temple is significant is not all of its splendor, not the gold, not the cedar. The reason the temple is significant is because of one thing, the presence of the Lord. The temple was the singular, solitary place on the earth where God chose to meet with His people. So the temple then is a microcosm. It's a small-scale model of all the works that God has made. And so we have been learning about the temple, and the way that we've been learning about the temple is by learning about creation. So the temple is this small-scale model of the whole creation, And so if we're going to learn about the temple, we need to look at creation. And, of course, where do we have the creation story in the Bible? It's in Genesis 1. It's in Genesis chapter 2. And so two things that we've learned so far. We've learned, first of all, that God, by creating, chose to make himself known. And the second thing we learn is that this God who has made himself known desires for the knowledge of him to be spread in all places. And the significant thing that we learned last week, if you remember, was the God of the universe chose to make himself known and spread that knowledge of him through the meagerest means. He chose me and he chose you. 
And so by learning these two things, we have a coalescence. We have a union of His desires and our purpose. His desires and our purpose. His desire to be known. Our purpose to make Him known. But if we read Genesis chapter 1 and we read Genesis chapter 2, it paints this glorious, beautiful picture of God creating, God saying, and it was so. God looking at the works that He made and saying that it's good. And really, if we're honest this morning, the longing of our hearts is for Genesis 1 and 2 to be the reality that we know. But that's really all it is. Genesis 1 and 2 is a longing. You see, we're in a world right now that have felt the devastating effects of what comes next. I'd love to be in Genesis 1 and 2 and be able to preach up here and tell you that that's all there is, Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis chapter 3 has come. I invite you to take your Bible and please go to the very beginning of your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. And what I want to do today is I want to read the whole of chapter 3, but I want to begin in chapter 2 and verse 25 so that we'll understand exactly what's going on in chapter 3. And remember this, at Oxford, uh, we've learned together that the chapter divisions were not there originally. Those weren't part of the original translation. So the chapter divisions that you have in your Bible are the translator's best guess of when to break up the story. But the story is one continuous thing. So to begin chapter 3, we really have to understand what happens in verse 25 of chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothing. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We pray now for this moment that you would open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we've just read together as a congregation from God's Word is a tragic event. It really is. And really, it's tragic because we're so quickly into tragedy. It's a shame that we only go two chapters. We just begin to enjoy the thought of paradise. We just begin to acquaint ourselves with the questions of what must it have been like to hear God walking in the cool of the day, just two chapters, and then all of a sudden it's like it all crumbles away. The rug is pulled out from underneath. I've heard some suggest that the Bible is just a utopian fairy tale. You ever heard that? You ever heard someone say that, that the Bible is just some pie-in-the-sky religion that, you know, it really no earthly good because people are just so heavenly-minded? You ever heard anyone say that? Maybe you've been accused of that before. But those who suggest such a thing, I want to say that they've either never read Scripture or they don't understand the Bible. Because look here, the story that God lays out for us isn't all roses and waterfalls. It has tragedy. But I tell you, let me tell you this. What the Bible gives us, the Bible gives us the true story of the whole world. And in that story, listen carefully to me, in that story there is great sorrow. Do you know what else there is? There's hope. And you know what's greater than every sorrow that's in the world? The hope that we have according to thus saith the Lord. 
So this morning, if we're going to feel the, the deep weight of Genesis chapter 3, we have to set it in the light of chapters 1 and 2. And this is the reason I wanted us to go back to chapter 2 and just begin to see. Because chapter 3 is the failure of God's people, Adam and Eve, to carry out His purpose. And what was His purpose? His purpose was for the borders of the garden to extend the knowledge of the Lord to spread as waters cover the sea. But that didn't happen. And the disaster of chapter 3 is God casting humanity away from His presence. That's what the disaster is. It's, and listen, it's not as if God is not there. Don't understand that. What do we mean by God casting him away from His presence? It's not as if He's not there, but what it means is humanity, because they're cast away from God's presence, no longer have unbridled access to God. There's something now between He and us. Sin has come in and ruptured our relationship. There now stands something in the way between us and Him. Sin has come in and ruptured our relationship. But listen, it's not beyond repair. The relationship that's been ruptured is not beyond repair, but it's beyond our ability to fix. We need a Savior. We need someone to come in and be our salvation. And listen, God is both. He's our Savior and He's our salvation. So let me teach you this morning three major truths from this text. And there's so many ways we could go. We could spend an entire month of sermons just on this passage right here. But I just want to teach you three major truths from this text about the veiling of God's presence. Number one, listen, and I want to repeat this. I know we ended here last time, but I want to just say this again. God's presence is the greatest. I can't overemphasize that enough. What made the Garden of Eden paradise was not the provisions that God put in place. And you can read chapter 1, and it tells us He put a lot of provisions in place. The sun coming up and going down, the moon and the stars to follow by night, the fact that we're not having to tread water, the fact that we have land to walk on. All of these things are God's provisions. But all of these things are not what made the Garden of Eden paradise. Matter of fact, they were even able to live in an environment where the temperature must have been just right because we read that they were both naked and not ashamed. So the temperature must have been just perfect. It's also not paradise because all they had to do, according to Genesis 1, was, and even Eve said this, all they had to do was just pick fruit and eat it. Eat whatever grew out of the ground. They didn't have to worry about the threat of being eaten by lions and tigers and bears. They didn't have to worry about any of those things. But all of those things were nothing compared to a major thing that was undergirding all things. The presence of God. You see, the Bible says in chapter 2 that the Garden of Eden was the place where God put the man, talked with the man, walked with the man. There was no hiding from God. Instead, there was just an enjoying of His presence. There was an awareness of His presence and unbridled access to Him. This is why when God comes walking in the cool of the day, we don't see Adam and Eve wondering, hey, what's that sound? They know automatically what it is. It must have been something customary to them. And what must it have been like to walk with God? In the cool of the day. They, they had a fellowship with God that was as natural as breathing. 
Speaking of breathing, listen to chapter 2 and verse 7. Listen to what the Bible says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, flippantly, we can go past that and just go beyond that. But listen carefully. God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. This idea of of God breathing into his nostrils carries this idea of absolute intimacy. This is evoking an amazing imagery of, of God reaching down, condescending to the earth that he created, and from it fashioning and forming personally and purposefully man and then with what almost resembles a kiss he reaches down and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life what a fellowship what a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms what a blessedness What a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Can you just imagine, imagine the sweet fellowship with God? Be still. And listen to the calming assurance. Listen to the calming, assuring sound of Him who treads the dawn coming and meeting with you. Listen to the Lord who forms the mountains and creates the wind. And declares to man what are his thoughts. Who makes the morning darkness. And treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And he has chosen to make himself known to you. To me. To us. Oh, it's no wonder the psalmist said, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Because God's presence is the greatest. There is no sorrow. There's only joy with Him. There's no suffering, only pleasure. There's no regret. There's only hope. There's no end. There's no goodbyes. It's always forever. Nothing is greater than enjoying the presence of God. Oh, I hope that you're longing this morning. I hope you can't wait to behold Him in all of His glory. I hope you wake up with every day with this great anticipation in your heart to think, you know what? I get to spend time with the Lord today. And He's given us that. 
Now, we have to fast forward a long way in Scripture, and we're going to do that as we continue this series. But let me just put a parenthesis right now and just say, we're going to see how He made Himself known to us in the way you already know how He did, through His Son, through the sending of His Spirit. This Son said what to us when He left us in Matthew 28? I am with you for how long? Always. Always. You see, this is our longing, the greatest part about being His creation. And so, number two, God's presence must be guarded. Listen, my friend, we have to guard His presence. So, when we open to chapter 3, when, when we read about a serpent, we're automatically tipped off that something isn't right when we read chapter 3. And we've already read this in chapter 2. The garden had borders. It had the rivers forming this border. And in the middle of those rivers, God planted a garden. He took the man that He created in the wilderness and He put him in the middle of the garden to work it and to keep it, to worship and obey. And so the garden had borders and it was to mankind's purpose was intended to extend those borders. But the idea of having borders is that nothing outside the border is to come within the border. And if something outside the border comes within the border, that's called infiltration. Now that's different than the extension of the borders. That's called expansion. One goes this way, the other goes this way. God wants expansion, not infiltration. And so expansion is good. It's taking what's in the borders, and we know because what's in the borders is good because God said that it was, and it's extending that outward. Infiltration is bad. It's taking what's outside the border and allowing what's outside the borders to infiltrate to come in. Now, Adam's job as a gardener was to extend the borders. And part of that extension was to then guard the border. Now, how does a garden extend its borders? Well, it has to grow. And there are things that can come into the garden that will prohibit its growth. And it's the gardener's job to make sure that nothing is in the garden that will hinder its growth, like, you know, weeds, thorns, snakes. Look at what the Bible says, the serpent. Look at the language in 3.1. It tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. You know why it uses that language, talking about the serpent being more crafty? You know what it's telling us? It's telling us that this serpent, he infiltrated the garden. He got there. He wasn't supposed to be there. He snuck into the garden. It was Adam's job to cast him out. It was Adam's job to get rid of the threat. To not allow the enemy to infiltrate, but to allow the borders of what's good to expand. But unfortunately, as we just read in Genesis 3, he failed miserably. He failed miserably. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat it you will surely Die. So look at this. God commands Adam before Eve's ever part of the picture. He commands Adam with this prohibition before Eve is ever in the picture. And so you know what? It's Adam's job then to come and tell Eve. So uh, I can see this playing out. 
or let me say this. It was Adam's job to teach Eve. He told her, but he failed to teach her. And there's an important difference. He told her, but he failed to teach her. The serpent then comes, and what's the first thing that he does? He craftily challenges the word of the Lord with the woman. And I can see this all playing out. Adam, he's received the word of the Lord uh, after Eve is created. You know, they're walking around the garden. He's saying, look over here. Here's the Pishon. Look over here. Isn't that a beautiful giraffe? Look over here. They walk by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve said, hey, what's that? Oh, let me tell you what that is. So Adam just repeats what God has said. He said, we can have any other tree, but not that one. If we ever eat of that one, we'll die. And then Adam adds his own commentary like some good husbands do. And some of, your, uh, some of you wives, you know how good your husbands are because they really love to talk. They just talk and they just talk and they just talk. And so he adds his own commentary on things. He said, oh, by the way, honey, don't even touch it. So far, so good. See, Adam tells her, but he doesn't teach her. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, it says that Adam, right here, after the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and look at this, She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's where Adam fails. Right there. That's where Adam fails. It's not as if Adam was down by the Pishon fishing. Adam was right there with Eve. Adam should have exercised dominion. He should have said to the serpent, get out. He should have been the man and taken care of the threat. He should have kicked the serpent out of the garden. But instead, Adam was with her and he ate. It's not Eve's fault. She was deceived. Adam had the opportunity because he's the one that received the direct revelation from God. He directly disobeyed. He failed his purpose of worshiping and obeying. And so when he did that, he forfeited his dominion. And as a result, look at the end of chapter 3. God expels the man and the woman from the garden. God expels them from his presence. And here's the sad part. We never see God coming and talking with Adam and Eve ever again the way that he did the rest of their lives. We don't ever see them looking and longing for the sound of Him walking in the garden. We don't ever see that. They only have an echo of the promise that He made and that promise carries them through. And so instead, what do we see? Repeated. We don't ever see Adam and Eve walking with God and enjoying His presence. But what we do see is something that's repeated time and time again. We see in Scripture whenever God reveals Himself in a spectacular way, whoever He reveals Himself to hides from Him. They're terrified of Him. Just like Adam and Eve did after they sinned. Instead of enjoying God's presence Humanity is terrified of God's presence. Sin is what does this. Sin is what does this because sin ruptures the relationship that you and I were intended to have with God. 
And so the presence of God in our lives must be guarded. And the way that it's guarded is given to us. And it's real simple this morning. Obey. Obey. That's how you guard the presence of God in your life. You simply obey. Because listen, obedience is the way to enjoying the presence of God. You see, God wants us to walk with Him. And listen, we cannot walk with God if we're going our own way. We can't do it. I just wonder this morning, as we're talking about all of these things, guarding the presence of God and obeying God, I wonder if that's the true longing of your heart this morning. Do you long to be with the Lord? Do you even agree with the first point, that God's presence is the greatest? And if you do, if you agree that God's presence is the greatest, then you will do all that you can to maintain a close relationship with Him. You will do all that you can to maintain close fellowship with Him. You will not allow anything in your life to hinder fellowship with God. In other words... You'll live a certain way. You'll be living your life with both eyes on the road. You'll be living your life with both hands on the wheel so that you can see what's coming. The King James and and preachers from a generation ago, they used to talk about walking circumspectly. Have you ever heard that language? Walking circumspectly. You know where that comes from? That comes from Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul's telling the Ephesians to guard their conduct and seek to live a life of holiness, seek to live a life of pleasing the Lord. And that word circumspectly is, is from an old Latin word which means to look around. Look around. So if we're walking circumspectly, we're walking with both eyes open, making sure that there's nothing in our path that's going to make us stumble and fall. And listen to me carefully. It's the fall that hinders our walking with God. There was a time when God was fed up with the people that He delivered from Egypt. Uh, the people from Egypt that He delivered, they decided that they were going to take all their gold, all their trinkets, and put them, put them all in a fire, melt them all together, and then make a cow. A golden calf. They were going to bow before this cow. And Aaron, the brother of Moses, said, Look, Israel, here is your God. He's the one who delivered us. So they all started bowing down before this golden cow. So Moses is up on the mountain. God looks down at the people. God's fed up with the people. And so God tells Moses this. He says this. All right, Moses, I've seen what the people are doing. I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the land that's flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to give you security on every side while you're there. I'll defeat every enemy for you. I'll send my angel to lead you the rest of the way, but I am not going with you. You know what Moses said in Exodus 33? Moses said, no deal. Moses said, if you aren't going with us, It's better for us to be right out here where you are than for us to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. It's better for us to have enemies all around us and have your presence than be in a place of false security without you. And I wonder this morning if that's your attitude. If you're longing for God or you're just simply longing for the things of God. Are you this morning longing for His presence? Are you this morning not satisfied with anything else other than 
him. There's one other truth that I want to draw from this passage before we close. And number three this morning, God, and this is the best point, and I wish I could spend all my time here, but I will later. Number three, God's presence will be with us. You see, listen to me carefully, because we know what God has said. God comes directly intervenes, And I love this story, because it's not as if God was up yonder, uh, oblivious to what happened. He saw the serpent come in, and he allowed it for whatever reason. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that God created the serpent. He allowed all these things to happen. He saw when the woman was fixing to take a bite, and he could have intervened at that moment and stopped it all from happening, but he allowed it to happen. And then he comes in, and he, with an act of grace, he comes to find the man who had fallen from him. He came to him, seeking and saving the lost one. And then he lays out this plan. And let me say this. God has a plan that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever stop God from accomplishing his plan. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. This is when God comes to the serpent. Look at what he says. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You know what we call that in the Bible talk? We call that the first gospel, the proto euangelion. This is the first announcement where God lets us in on the plan. We're going to have this son who's going to come as the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of our enemy, the serpent. All the shame, all the regret, all the hurt, and all the pain that Adam and Eve will now know because of sin will one day be undone by this seed who will come from the woman. The announcement here that God makes of cursing will be met one day by another song, a song of joy to the world. A song that says, as we already sang, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor Thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. In case you didn't get it, far as the curse is found. And one day, the melody of that song that began to fill the earth on that day will one day fill the earth And one day, the melody of that song in one particular place began to fill the earth as an angel came to a devout man who had just heard that his fiancée was pregnant and he knew that he wasn't a father. The angel told him, marry the girl, name the son Jesus, because he's going to be the one by whom salvation comes And He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Jesus is our God with us. And I just wonder, all of these beautiful poinsettias and nativity scene behind me and uh, candles burning and wreaths on the door, is this the way you see this time of the year? Is this the way that you see Jesus? 
You see, far from being some idea or even some guy, Jesus is the way. Listen, Jesus is the way that God restores our broken and ruptured relationship with Him. And He has done so through the greatest act of love, the sending of the Son. Look at the end of chapter 3 again. I want to show you this. Look at this. God removes Adam and Eve. And you know why He does? He does, listen, He does, He removes them as an act of grace. God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life and have an eternal life of being afraid of the presence of God. So you know what He does? He drives them out. Look, lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. God has no problem with people living forever. He wants us to live forever in a certain way with Him. And so with grace, He drives them out. And then look at what He does. The only way to get back in to the garden and take the tree of life is to go through this angel with a flaming sword that guards in every direction. I don't know about you, but in my imagination, when I read the Bible, I have, I have these images. And this guy, he is ominous. What must he have looked like with a flaming sword in every direction? How do you get past this guy? The only way to get past the angel is to be willing. Listen, the only way to get past the angel is to be willing to be cut. And when Jesus comes, we learn that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And the Bible says it's by his wounds that healing comes. Jesus was not just willing to be cut to open the path of life to us. Jesus was cut down for us. And then he was raised from the grave to offer all of those who trust in him life. So this morning, my question is very simple to you. As we think about Genesis 3, as we think about how the whole Bible fits together, I just want to ask you, have you been healed? Have you been healed? Has the precious blood of Jesus covered a multitude of your sins? Has the precious blood of Jesus, this one who was willing to go and look death in the face and say, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Listen, He conquered death by death. It's amazing. You know why? Not so we could just talk about it some Sundays and sing a bunch of songs and go about our life. He did it for you. For you. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. What did He send the Son to do? Bleed, be tortured, die, raise back to life so that whoever believes in Him would never have to go through those things would enjoy eternal life forever. Have you been healed this morning? And you say, how do I know? How do I know? Are you right now, listen, and this is between you and God. Nobody knows this, but you can tell me whatever you want. You can tell your mama, your daddy, your cousin, 
You can tell whoever you want. Between you and God, you know. Do you long for the presence of God? Or does the thought of God terrify you? As one who knows Jesus, I can say, those who know Jesus will long for Him. Those that don't know Him, they don't think about Him at all. But the good news is, while we were still sinners, far away from Him, He came after us, seeking and saving by sending the Son. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You for loving us. It's my prayer today that everyone within the sound of my voice has an expectation of being with You forever, has a longing in their heart of being with Jesus, enjoying the fullness of God forever. Father, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, who's not longing for the presence of God, I pray right now that You would save them. That they, Lord God, in the stillness of where they sit, they would pray in their heart, O Lord, I'm a sinner, but You have sent Jesus to save. You have sent Jesus to secure the presence of God forever. Father, I don't want to be far from you. I want to be close to you. Save me, O God. Father, if people say that in their heart, give them the confidence to know that if they confess their sins, you are faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. Father, give them the confidence to know that they belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.